This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. It really is like a great honor to be on your podcast. There are so many people that I've admired that you have spoken about so many interesting topics with. So I, I hope that I'm able to to contribute and add something of value. And um, don't worry about running a few minutes late. I was more than mentally prepared for a podcast called the Beirut Banyan. To be uh, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> you know, you should be saying I was running late too. I completely forgot we were going to record. I ran home. I assumed you'd be late as well. But no, you're very, you're too kind. You're too kind. Before we jump into geopolitics and that very heavy terrain, I just want to, maybe your, your immediate sort of reaction to the duration, the, the longevity of protests in Beirut and, and in Lebanon. That it's, you know, we're approaching now nine months, nine, ten months of an ongoing protest movement. Mm -hmm. Maybe the numbers aren't so dramatic, but the demands have not been met. And you still have protesters showing up. And it's just, it's become almost like, um, it's become normal day-to-day -day activity in Lebanon that there's going to be a protest somewhere in the country. That, let's start there. The, the, the ability for a population to keep pushing, mm -hmm. despite the odds, that it doesn't seem like the Lebanese regime is going to fall anytime soon. It doesn't seem like that. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't seem like there's been much mm -hmm. compromise, per se, with the protest movement's demands. There's almost like a, a paralysis, if you will. Yeah. So just, just that, rea the reaction to a population's ambitions mm -hmm. and also a regime's stubbornness, maybe, and, yeah. and, and just your immediate reaction. It's a really, it's a really great, great question. Um, I think the kind of the most important thing to bear in mind is that the protests that we are seeing now uh, have really evolved from the ones that we saw happening in mid-October, both in terms of number of people um, kind of gathering in a particular space and inhabiting public spaces, the type of civil unrest and kind of um, action, political action has changed a lot and it's really responded to, to what you mentioned, the kind of the longevity and the duration of the protests itself because with any social movement you get you get over after a certain period of time, you know, you understandably get um, you know, lag and exhaustion. Yeah. People have to return back to, to to somewhat of a daily life. People still need to, you know, make money and put food on the table. So I think that whilst um, the 
the core demands of the movement haven't changed. The way it's conducted itself, the way it organizes itself, inevitably had to, just to yep. account for the kind of, um, for, the, for the normal progression of the social movement that really, you know, uh, erupted over a short space of time and in huge numbers. When we compare the the um, uprising in Lebanon to movements that we saw in Algeria, for example, that every Friday and, and in some cases Tuesday as well, for over a year, you saw continually high numbers of people turn out. Right. I think right. that um, it's another example to demonstrate how social movements um, you know, respond accordingly to different factors, and it's not a kind of static and fixed, uh, you know, formula. They they respond to different factors. In Lebanon, it it changed to protesters picking back up after the COVID restrictions were lifted, yes. and because of various developments, um, financial developments specifically, you saw what was happening. People weren't meeting in downtown Beirut. They weren't large crowds gathering in, in kind of uh, outside the parliament in downtown. They were going to banks. They were going to, you know, other geographical areas. They were going to the central bank in Beirut. They were, you know, going to banks in Saida and Tripoli. And they were changing their tactics based on the political factors that had led them to the streets for the kind of continued motivations that they were there. So um, I think it's likely that we will see the movement shifting over the next few months as, um, you know, what's looking likely, the financial crisis not being solved. I think that the movement will keep on changing its response based on um, the government's kind of handling of the next few weeks. But you're right, in terms of durability, we have the kind of the uh, the uh, introduction of the so-called technocratic government yeah, yeah. Um, less than two weeks after the protests first began in, in the middle of October. And they seem to be, you know, first and foremost focused on trying to, to fix the current crisis. To, I, I say finish talks with IMF, but at this stage it would be restart them from what I understand of right. the kind of school negotiations. So... Whilst the state is in itself, um, it seems to be fairly durable to the asks of the protests. I do think that they will continue and their, and their tactics will shift. They will start to target specific institutions and kind of symbols of the state, whether it be the bank or um, uh, today we saw the protesters were gathering, I, I think, outside the minister of um, Tourism and yes. yeah, in Hamra, yeah. Uh, yeah. they were responding to a real world development of his affiliates attacking an activist. I think that we're more likely to see these kind of um, targeted, more kind of calculated civil action in the in the coming few weeks, as opposed to kind of mass, wide scale, nationwide demonstrations. And at, at this point, mm. do you still see the? All, all of what you said, the, the flexibility, the fluidity, uh, protesting different sectors, if you will, whether it's private banks or whether it's the central bank, uh, ministries and the like, do you still see this movement for the most part as a domestic story, that it's one born out of a local grievance towards local actors? Or, or and, and at least, I mean, since October until today, do you also 
factor in any regional developments. That, that could include, by the way, the simple fact that it wasn't just Lebanon protesting the last eight, nine months, that you had protests in Iraq and, and Iran as well, and to, Syri- and to a certain point, Syria. But that, I mean, is it still, to you at least, local affairs? Or is it, is it tied into, if you will, geopolitics, that there's a geopolitical dimension to what we're seeing? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the short answer of that is, yes, I do think that the protests are still predominantly uh, based on localized grievances. And whilst it's, it can be helpful to an extent to put, it, to put the, the movement in Lebanon within the wider regional context, I think that there is a danger of kind of getting drawn into focusing too much on the similarities between mm, the mm. Lebanon yeah. with Iraq, um, and even to a certain degree what we saw in Iran in November as well. I think that at the time there was a kind of very dominant narrative that these are the kind of, um, this is uh, the anti-Iran backlash. And, and whilst I think that it's, import- it's an important um dimension to acknowledge that, you know, these are protests happening at very similar times in countries that have um, some shared characteristics, but I think it does a disservice to each movement to kind of lump them together without really understanding the kind of nuance within each country and within each socioeconomic factors that have led to the streets, regardless of kind of differences in economic models and governance, um, whilst I think that it's really useful to situate Lebanon within the wider region and to kind of see if the movement is interacting with with what's happening, um, you know, in Syria, which we saw in Sweden not too long ago, um, or in Iraq, uh, I think that it should be done with the kind of intention of not viewing them with a one-dimensional, very kind of... uh, narrow parameters, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was solidarity. I think that that was, you know, um, was very clear. But in terms of of saying that they were linked beyond the fact that people, you know, are suffering from socioeconomic conditions that were caused by years of mismanagement and graft, I think that those are the similarities that we should draw on Mm. and perhaps um, kind of accept those as foundations for a lot of the movements that we've been seeing in the region over the last year or so, but then to kind of not allow it to to overtake the analysis of the individual movements. It's really interesting because I I, I like the way you describe it in a way that that it it is robbing each story from its purpose, so to speak, if you just sort of lump them all together and say this is one anti-Iranian moment. It's clearly not one and the same. At the same time, though, they are within the same geopolitical sphere, so to speak, in the same orbit, in the loosest uh, definition. And I am not a uh, geopolitical risk analyst, so I sound stupid saying that to someone who is a risk analyst. But I'm, I mean, that it is, there is a sort of a shared geopolitical calculation and that most of the protests that we saw in the last eight, nine months were challenging, quote, Iran's sphere. And that's the loosest sort of, uh, the loosest definition of what that is. And also, also that the stories line up 
in a sense that they are all challenging corruption or, or mm-hmm. variations of it. Could be accountability. It mm-hmm. could be uh, theft. I mean, the Lebanese story is sort of three decades old, and but in Iraq, it's sort of a shared kind of some transparency, some mm-hmm. decent governance. And I'm assuming at its core, most Iranian protesters are championing that as well, albeit through different maybe it's a different story, but it's the same kind of grievance. Mm-hmm. With that sort of two layers at play, domestic challenge and geopolitical calculation. Is the story of corruption in your eyes tied to these two spheres? That that the corruption that we see is a byproduct of geopolitics or is the economic story unrelated? That geopolitics is geopolitics. There is a regional war that is playing out and there's also poor governance at home and the two don't necessarily line up. So just like unpacking that, is that is is this one sort of large story, or are these separate books altogether? Um, it's it's a very difficult one to unpack because I'm glad you said that because I was worried that you were going to say that's a great question. Then I'll be like, damn it, you're you're going to be on every day. <laughs> it's a it's a really difficult thing to unpack because yeah. you know what. What is geopolitics without the kind of localized elements of politics? It doesn't exist. There's no regional dynamics to analyze without the kind of, um, you know, internal characteristics. And to an extent, you know, these things all interplay with one another. I think it would be a mistake to say that these are the very clearly defined boundaries for what counts as, you know, internal affairs of a country. And this is its regional affairs and they're very separate. And khalas, that's it. We can just categorize them in these different ways. Did I, I, did I hear that, that right? Did you just name, did you word drop to, I know what podcasts to get some authenticity? In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> um, but I do, I do think that it's unrealistic to kind of um, to not expect the regional to interplay with the with the domestic. This is an this is you know an inevitability in my eyes. Mm. In terms of corruption as a specific case, um, I think that the argument can be drawn that you know um, there would be. In, in many of the cases that we're looking at, in Lebanon, for example, corruption isn't is is facilitated by the kind of regional networks that exist that allow corrupt practices to operate. And I don't think that that's necessarily a strictly Lebanese characteristic. I think that the nature of the way that kind of um, uh, you know corporate finance and and specific um, mechanisms that allow uh, state corruption to exist I don't think that they you can kind of um, in, in many cases say that they are inherent to a domestic um, frame and that they don't interplay with their with their neighboring um, countries I think that given the way that the world is organized today it's only natural that something like state corruption would kind of span across the region thereby mm-hmm. taking it from the domestic into the regional but um, I can't I can't kind of give you specific examples on that so there is a web in a sense between all of the above that there, that there's a it seems like the two are so interlinked that and this is maybe I'm going to ask you a, a, a huge question here can local grievances be solved without 
sort of addressing the geopolitical problems. Where, where for example, the average Iraqi can hope for a decent state while ignoring the Iran-Saudi Arabia rift, or, or the average Lebanese citizen doesn't have to think about what the Iranians and the Israelis are doing, and, and so on. That it's almost like, can they be tackled separately, or are they sort of unfortunately so linked up that they, that they have to be addressed at the same time? It forces you to really reckon with the idea that if states functioned in the way that, you know, ideally they should do, mm, yeah. i.e. providing basic services, such as yeah. electricity and water and, um, you know, healthcare, education, if they functioned in the ways that they should do, that we see an absence of in, in Lebanon and the wider region, um, you know, would the, would the question of kind of regional dynamics interfere as much if there wasn't so much kind of um, failure, state failure? I think it's a really hard one to answer. And mm -hmm. I think that given what we've discussed about the kind of um, the historical geo um, geopolitical links between not just, you know, current politicians sure. of the neighboring yeah. country, but we're talking, you know, decades, if not longer, entrenched uh, economic, financial, familial ties across Lebanon specifically and its, and its um, uh, immediate neighbors that I think that in this case, it would be very difficult to address the question of kind of state governance without also addressing the kind of uh, regional relationships that the country has as well. You know, I, I'm going to focus in on Lebanon for a moment, and I, I can ask you maybe to focus in as well, because I know that you've spent time there, that you consider Beirut maybe home to a point, or at, at certain points you're there. I'm, I think the Lebanese story is extremely complicated, and I, and I, I assume that all of the above, the, the economic crisis, the financial crisis, the political crisis, and the geopolitics are part of the story in different ways, but they all, they all there are different components here at play. I'm going to start really at the maybe the first few weeks, if you will, of the October uprising. And I'm going to quote you to you only because, only because I've never had the chance to say these two words next to each other. Encyc Encyclopedia Geopolitica. Oh, okay, yeah. What a name, what a name. <laughs> and I, sort of your, your reference, and I'm going to sort of read out loud the quote that you're referenced right? Uh, and it says, <laughs> Shadnia notes, that's you. Real-time responses came organically to accommodate the millions of protesters across the country. People needed to organize food, sound systems, medical centers, and even scooter services amidst roadblocks. When a vacuum of governance is highlighted in such a stark way, it allows people to step in. Lebanese people have dealt with an absence of governance for decades and so have ample experience in organizing their communities. This is just the first time we're seeing it on such a large scale. This resonated with me so much because that is really my life experience in Lebanon. Yeah. More recently, since this was written, is COVID-19 and the way that the Lebanese population handled it was remarkable. It's almost, you know, not going to turn to the Ministry of Health to sort of have proper phases and stages and all that, Lebanese went home. 
they socially distanced, everyone got a mask, and it was almost like very inspiring in that the population understood this is a very big crisis, they handled it. Uh, every single way Lebanese can kind of cope with an absent authority, we figured it out, whether it's generators for electricity, whether it's UPS systems when there's no generator to make sure there's a light bulb on, whether it's at times water, it could be basic services, basic services, where the state is not there, mm -hmm. Lebanese find a way. And the October uprising, I mean, it's almost like whether the state was there or not didn't matter. The population was demanding something new. And it seems like the regime, whatever this power-sharing creature Lebanon has, has not, it doesn't look like it's fragile enough to the point that it will disappear in the near future. At the same time, Lebanese are forced now to cope with a state that's barely providing. I think Beirut is uh, half of the day, there's no electricity, if not more. I've had yeah, there were exactly there were stretches where there was no. I mean, and there's blackouts throughout most of the country, and it's reached the point where the Lebanese are not able necessarily to provide a separate authority for their day-to-day -day lives. They can't sort of create a parallel institution because that's just impossible. You need to have a functioning state at the end of the day. So I'm going to ask you in a sort of with some perspective, some hindsight. After that was written in October, do you sense that the Lebanese have reached a tipping point, including the hyperinflation that we've seen, where I think it's now something, it's an outrageous figure. The, what seems to be half the population is now technically poverty, mm -hmm. that there's hunger, there's lines for bread, there's stories of low-level crimes, of theft, and there's, yeah. there's a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Which to me seems like there's only so much this population can do without yeah. things completely falling apart. Yeah. Do you sense that this is a tipping point or, or, or do you still have some hope in that and the ability for Lebanese to do exactly which, which, what you wrote, which is they're able to deal with an absence of governance for decades? Has it reached a cutoff? I think that yes, the tipping point has been reached, but also I think that um, I read something really interesting online today. There was a great thread by um, the Synapse Network. I, I knew you were going to say that. I, I, I knew it. I was, yeah, I, I, I knew it. Yeah, yeah. I saw, it's a very long thread. We, we both read long. it. Yeah. I think that it's very, it's very easy to get bogged down in this kind of, you know, the tropes about Lebanese resilience and without really kind of like undermining the, the hardship and the strain and pressure that people are under at the moment. Um, but what the points that was raised in that thread uh, tried to focus on the kind of positive um, aspects in a time where it is so difficult um, yeah. to find any semblance of hope or optimism. Um, I think that what it did was it highlighted really well how 
the kind of um, population and as well like how different sectors can respond to the kind of seismic shifts mm. that we see mm. happening in the country at the moment. And these shifts are happening whether people want them or not. And, um, you know, ways in which people can respond, you know, positively to this is readdressing Lebanon's imbalance of their, um, uh, of their kind of uh, need on uh, need for imports. They can address the kind of agricultural um, uh, kind of disparities and kind of look to strengthening, um, you know, domestically produced products and and also kind of allowing for a more entrepreneurial uh, landscape for the you know thousands of, of bright graduates leaving universities that would often look to turn abroad. Yeah. Um, you know, without those, as awful as it sounds, without those availabilities to them that have existed prior, new opportunities may arise. So I think that the kind of tipping point question and the you know, is there any space for optimism? I think there are two separate things, although I, you know, I, I fully appreciate how it's very easy for me who does not have to live through, you know, what it's, what is happening in the country at the moment. It's, I can appreciate how it would be very frustrating to be going through 22 hour electricity parts yeah. to have the leader at whatever it is now. Um, and to, you know, not be able to afford food but in the same way, I can I can really understand how it would be very difficult to think. What what do I care if the agricultural industry transforms itself in the next five to ten years? So, you know, I read that um, thread. I read it the same way, which is that, and I think that was the gist of the thread, which is this is a painful transition into something yeah. different. Yeah. And I, I'm sort of getting that from from the piece and the the quote that it's a reference to the old way that mm. Lebanese could sort of step in given the dysfunctionality of the post-war order or even yeah. or even the civil war itself. And now that order is seems to be in the long term mm. changing fundamentally, long term, so mm. that this is the beginning of something. And I think they use the word better in the thread yeah. that they actually pointed that, that this is something long term for the better of the country. Mm. But is it, I mean, I, I ask as a risk analyst, <laughs> is there do you sense a a a foundation that's crumbling and perhaps the the uglier side of sort of disorder and and chaos and anarchy that this could turn violent not in the way that we've seen not like not attacking banks or infrastructure mm -hmm. or even going and raiding a ministry or all of the this sort of uh that kind of violence seems to be born out of the protest movement and it's sort of a challenge to authority. Mm. But the other kind of violence, the social unrest, what yeah. eventually spills out of control into uh, hopefully not a civil war, but something like that where it's just too dangerous and, uh, you know, the long term is very long. It could be decades from now. Um, I think it's a more than fair question. I think that the kind of... Um, you know, there have been lots of general discussions and in, in kind of wider media about, um, you know, whether Lebanon is kind of on the brink of something uglier. And I think that it's, uh, you know, given the kind of modern history that, you know, Lebanon has, I think it's understandable for people to go to that question. However, I think that um, 
there are kind of other issues that I would kind of flag as being more likely to happen in the short term at least. Um, first and foremost being, I think that what, we're, what we are likely to see happening over the coming few weeks and months is really a crackdown on uh, on free speech advocates, on yeah. activists. I think right. that, and you know, that, that has always existed, the kind of, the, the laws against defaming the presidency or whatever laws it is that um, the security forces are kind of deploying at the moment to arrest um, protesters and prominent activists, they have existed for some time. And security forces have a precedent of going after activists. This is by no means a new development. I do think that there is, there is the potential for kind of localized disruptions like that, mm -hmm. that um, involve, you know, uh, armed assailants of one group allied to a particular, you know, political party or confessional group. Um, I think that there is a potential for that to increase. I don't see it becoming something that will be um, uh, repeated on a kind of weekly basis. I think that it is still uncommon, but I don't think that there is a zero risk of that happening in the, in the next few months. I know that the Caesar Act is in place, and I know that there is uh, there are potential consequences, at least when it comes to the economies of, of Lebanon and Syria. And at the same time, this is it seems to be a belated attempt at holding the Syrian regime to account in some way. I want to get your just opinion, if if you will, on yeah. on the merits of this Caesar Act, whether or not it it is going to, in your in your assessment. Uh, change the geopolitics of the region in any way, whether mm -hmm. it's directly through the Syrian regime or indirectly through sort of the Syrian regime's allies in the region. And is this, do you see this as a temporary measure in the maybe the what could be the last months of the Trump administration? Or, or is this something that you sort of see as a permanent approach to the Syrian regime that that in other words, the regime will not be able to function the way it did in 2010, before the Syrian uprising began. That it's always going to have this sort of, uh, that it'll be, it'll be curtailed, if you will, from exerting full control. Mm -hmm. uh, and so maybe the story of the sanctions, the geopolitics, and whether or not it actually does achieve its its goals. Mm -hmm. Okay, I well, I think... Firstly, it's a kind of, I think we have to remember that there are going to be continued announcements of different sanctions under the Caesars Act. And mm -hmm. So far, we've only seen the first round. And the first round has really only targeted very, very close uh, individuals and entities to the Syrian government in a way that I don't think has necessarily had reverberations on the wider region as of yet. Right. It may have, you know, curtailed their um, ability to kind of use um, international finance networks in order to kind of, um, you know, uh, resource um, the, their, the, the conflict and their activities. But um, in terms of kind of the implications on the wider region, I think we really have to see what other sanctions are announced. Mm -hmm. um, we know that it's very likely that the U.S. are going to announce or at least have planned sanctions against Hezbollah and linked entities at some point. However, I think that there were discussions about whether 
um, Lebanon's current financial crisis has has pressured um, the government, Washington specifically, to perhaps yeah. reassess the timings of certain sanctions mm -hmm. that you know may have kind of detrimental impacts to an already very kind of severe economic crisis in Lebanon. So I think we really have to wait to see what sanctions are kind of um, are announced further. I think that. Um, you know, Syria's economy has also suffered greatly, even more so in the last however many months, in that the, the currency has depreciated yeah. by um, kind of similar levels to the lira, perhaps perhaps slightly more. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure in the details exactly off the top of my head, but um, what the sanctions are aimed at doing is really, you know, discouraging any kind of foreign government or foreign business that might be tempted to deal with Damascus, particularly in the reconstruction process. Right. It's designed to kind of make things as difficult as possible for any any actor, any entity, state or otherwise, that, you know, may be looking to to kind of involve involve themselves in the Syrian economy. And I think that um you know, who, who, if we look to kind of, you know, Syria's largest patrons at the moment, Iran is already under such far-reaching sanctions that at this point, what is it that that sanctions haven't impacted on their economy? Um, and I, I, you know, I know that there was discussion um, in kind of um, American policymaker circles about whether the fallout from the global oil slump crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, whether Iran has said that, the, you know, Iran is retracting from their position in Syria yeah. to kind of prioritize um, domestic issues. Um, well, we saw recently the kind of new military agreement between Damascus and Tehran that I think suggests that Iran's role in Syria is, is entrenched and they envision it to be long term. And I think that sanctions, regardless of how far reaching, uh, uh, will be, um, will not hugely impact Iran's role in, in the country for, for the foreseeable future, as, as I see it anyway. So it doesn't have a, there's no real short term impact per se, at least in terms of the way we've seen things developing that this will not change any geopolitical calculations, so to speak? I think that the, the financial burdens that will be incurred by the by Damascus will be passed on to the population, so, and right. they, will, they yes. will be the ones that will bear the brunt of the sanctions, mm. um, whether it be a further depreciation in the, in the value of the Syrian pound, whether it be, um, you know, certain factories or businesses that are tied to government entities that are unable to operate in the same way. I think right. it will be their employees, and I think it will be ordinary Syrian citizens still living under the government that will bear the brunt of the sanctions. So that will be the immediate impact in terms of the immediate geopolitical regional impacts on Syria and Lebanon as well, given the kind of historic economic ties between the two countries um it's it's very difficult to say at this moment mm. uh, uh, particularly given that kind of lebanon's own financial sector was um played such a huge role in syria's economy anyway right. so again it's this kind of it's this it's this idea that the localized is so entrenched in these regional dynamics that it's very difficult to unpick you know what counts as what. So um, 
So yeah, my my cop out answer would be we have to wait and see. <laughs> no, but that's I mean I I no I appreciate this in a way it's almost like an explanation of what the sanctions are meant to do, but also that yeah there is a suffering population that will suffer more as a result. But not to get too deep into it, I just want to ask you: Do you see a more effective tool in the geopolitical story, let's say, where the Syrian regime would be held to account in any way, and the population would not have to incur sort of the consequences of that arrangement? I mean, is there are there other avenues away from sanctions that would maybe help doing two things: alleviating the suffering of the Syrian people, Syrian population that has suffered over nearly a decade now, and also the regime has to face some form of justice or any form of accountability. I mean, just, and I ask this as an amateur, I'm not going to use the word analyst, I'm not an analyst, but somebody who tries to see that what, what would be a smarter approach if one exists. You know, some of the things that we've seen under the uh, under the CISA Act, I think, are really um, beneficial, targeting the kind of accumulated personal wealth mm. of individuals tied to the Syrian government, targeting mm. their access to foreign citizenship, targeting, you know, um, bank accounts in Switzerland. I think that um, kind of very specific actions that look to really curtail um Associates of uh, of the kind of Syrian government's yeah. um, to kind of continue amassing the wealth. But it requires international cooperation as well. It can't just be Washington saying we're not going to allow sure. X yeah. to have access to you know this bank account in Geneva or whatever. It yeah. would require kind of wider scale cooperation, international cooperation. And I think that there has been some to. To be fair, I think that there has been some, especially within Europe. Um, but I think that that's, that's perhaps, that's one way that I would... Um, so, so in other words, the smarter the sanctions, the more targeted the sanctions, the better for everyone involved. That kind of, uh, in other words, not trying to just remove the economic component mm -hmm. as much as possible, where the mm -hmm. Syrians can rebuild, to a, yeah. to a, they can rebuild, basically, <laughs> they can rebuild. But the regime does not sort of reap the benefits of that at the same time. Exactly. I'm curious, and I'm turning to you for knowledge here. And I hope, I mean, I, I if you have the answers, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be calling you every day. Okay, <laughs> the 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 mystery attacks. Yeah. The, if not every day, almost every day, these reports of today it's boats. I think two ships that were on fire in on a port city in Iran. Just the last few weeks where you've seen attacks on, on installations, and I think there was a nuclear research facility that was also attacked. Yeah, so just that, that what's happening in the background, and, and, and I mean, without, I, I don't think you're, I mean, you probably don't have a phone call, you can just sort of get the answer, and you know, you, you know everything that's happening. But I'm curious, your assessment of, of exactly what's going on. In, in other words, is this the usual sort of uh, sabotage story and then the sort of, the, it, it's, uh, the assumption is that it's either the Americans or the Israelis or perhaps with Saudi support. I'm just curious what, what you think is 
the wider implications and mm -hmm. and maybe uh, if this is the future of proxy wars, although they're not necessarily proxy, they're 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 in Iran, but that's sort of where the where the where the battle is being sort of drift. It's being taken home, so to speak. Yeah. At the moment, everything that is being discussed is still speculation. There has not been any kind of. Um, whilst there have been lots of suggestions, and even Iranian officials have said, you know, we blame. Israel for this. Yeah. I think that at the moment, especially in the way that it's being reported, there's still just so much speculation. Is this sabotage? Is this something else? Is this a cyber war between Iran, the US and Israel? I think that, um, yeah, it's important to kind of note that this is still very much speculative. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that as it stands, I mean, there have been so many that I, I genuinely I can't keep count. I can't remember the number of of you know. Could be a dozen or so. I mean, it's, yeah, that have happened around the same time. And do we do we count those as in the same bracket? How do we you know identify which is which at right. the moment? I think yeah. that it's been such an um, such a significantly high number of potential linked incidents. Um, Theoretically, as it sounds, you know, have to put all of the caveats in. Um, I think Tehran's, uh, I would go far as to say their kind of like uh, silence on the issue, given the scale of it, is, is quite telling. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what Iran's um, approach is in terms of dealing with the U.S., is at the moment, given that we're so close to the November presidential elections, many people have said that they are really just sitting tight and and hoping that Joe Biden gets elected president, in which case they will have a, a different um, administration to deal with. They might have a different kind of um, American foreign policy. They might have a better chance at um, kind of uh, re-evaluating their position with the nuclear deal um, as it stood in 2015. Um, so there's all this speculation about how Tehran is is trying to manage their relationship with Washington at the moment. Right. Um, which I think a lot of people have kind of interpreted as like the reason why we haven't seen the kind of aggressive rhetoric from Tehran that one would assume would, you know, would occur yeah. given what we have seen in the last few weeks. Um, I think that Iran's, uh, what what these incidents, people call them incidents, I think that it's too early to say attacks, so I'm going to stick with incidents. It's a nice, safe option. Um, <laughs> I, I, I stand corrected. But what, they, what they have really highlighted is that there are serious infrastructural weaknesses in Iran's security apparatus, and this is a, a huge area of embarrassment to Tehran, frankly, and this is something that in some cases in the early in the early incidents at the nuclear facility, they they even said, oh, there was no damage. And then the, and then the photos emerged and you see, you know, huge extensive fire damage. So I think that the combination of the kind of uns, you know, surprisingly um, toned down rhetoric that we've seen from Tehran, and this may change coupled with the kind of initial attempts at downplaying the extent of the damage caused by, you know, these incidents, um, I think is very telling about 
the position that Iran finds themselves in at the moment, as well as any, you know, potential response or, or kind of short-term reaction to what we have seen. I think that um, it's unavoidable that Iran is in an economically much weaker position than they were in January um, after the the airstrikes that killed Qasem Soleimani in yes, Iraq. Yes, yes. We, we see here, whilst, okay, the these two, you know, contexts can't be compared. They're different targets, they're different... Um, the factors are very different, but in terms of the kind of immediate response, I think that um, the way that Tehran has behaved in the last couple of weeks is is, is quite interesting. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily refer to it as restraint. I think they're just being very strategically minded. They know that they're in an economically vulnerable position. They're hoping that they won't have to deal with the same American administration in November. I think that as it stands, they're probably hedging their bets about yeah. how much they can kind of stomach from whatever it is that's going on until their hand is forced to kind of show some some kind of a response to whatever actor might be behind what we've seen. Um, and I think that it is, I think that, you know, whilst again, it's everything is still speculation, I think that if it did get to a point where there was credible evidence that Israel was um, orchestrating some of this um, activity, I think that it raises the really significant question of, well, Iran has always threatened to kind of deploy Hezbollah along the, yeah. the border in any kind of eventuality of rising conflict entities. So what implications does that have? Should should we get to that stage? And this is a very far far away question. Still theoretical stage. And perhaps not even worth exploring. But I do think that kind of unearth about what has happened in Iran, the more that people will you know, naturally be drawn to these questions. Because there will there will there will be a reaction regardless, whether it's a kind of targeted strategic strike to cause the least amount of possible of damage possible. You know, similar to what we saw in August of last year when Hezbollah targeted the empty Israeli technical and then yeah. pretended that there were soldiers in it to yeah. kind of in their face. Um, are we likely to see something that will play well with Iran's um, the Iranian government's base just to show that they have done something or will it be slightly different? Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very fragile <laughs> uh, thing that we're dealing with at the moment. I, I kind of don't want to get too theoretical about it, but it's difficult, it's difficult not to at the moment. Do you see any dramatic changes happening to the geopolitical story that we're living through? In other words, I mean, the, the Saudi-Iranian rift, uh, American-Iranian tensions, uh, Iraq, Syria, the sanctions, Hezbollah, Iran, I mean, all of the above. Is there anything that you see changing fundamentally in the near future, or is this more or less the paradigm that we're going to be living through for mm. the time being? 
And I, I know that's a huge question to end it on, but I'm curious because what better person to ask than a geopolitical risk analyst? <laughs> well, I'll, do, I'll do my best to, to, to kind of to answer that to the best of my ability um, and say that uh, I don't know for certain. I don't think that anybody can kind of comfortably say that they can predict what will happen in yeah. the next six, even the next month. I think that 2020 has shown us anything. It's that, you know, nothing is... Uh, Certain. Well said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, but I do think that there are kind of regional flashpoints um, of potential conflict that um, you know will be worth um, kind of keeping an eye on, or do represent the kind of potential biggest threats to kind of the dynamics that we see currently. Um, mm. First, first, I mean, the kind of the first thing that I would suggest, which we've already discussed, is this kind of um, the the kind of plausible deniability tactic used by governments now, uh, in a way that kind of allows them to hide between behind rather either you know armed militias or other political actors. This idea that, as you, I think you've mentioned earlier, this kind of idea of a proxy war, but in Iran, but yeah, it's the yeah. idea of plausible deniability. We see it used um, across the region by different actors. I think that that is something that we will probably see more of. I think that the way that conflict will be carried out, I don't think it will be state on state uh, or even necessarily by um, kind of political actors in the um, historically, you know, general ideas of modern warfare that we see it. I think that um, it will be, you know, targeted attacks on specific facilities. I think that it will, you know, be the kind of occurrence of random unknown groups popping up. The first attack that happened at the Iranian nuclear facility was claimed by an unknown um, purported Iranian group called the Homeland Cheetahs or Panthers. I can't remember the, the name of But I think that stu I think the incidents like that that allow states to kind of conduct nefarious activities behind this plausible deniability, I think that that's something that we'll probably see more of in the, in the short term, for sure. Um, I also think that... Um, the, another potential flashpoint of conflict will arise when um, the Israeli government annexes parts of the occupied West Bank in the way that they have uh, said that they would do and have kind of halted their plans and uh, that they said that they would carry out in July. Um, I don't think that regional states will uh, react with anything other than harsh rhetoric. I think that maybe you'll see a loss of, you know, some diplomatic um, yeah. uh, kind of communications. I don't think that it will be enough to kind of cut relations off completely, particularly between Israel and, and Gulf Arab countries in which we have seen a warming of relations in the last five years that, yeah. you know, we haven't seen in decades. Right. I don't think that it will be enough to kind of change those dynamics. But so, so these like smaller stories of, you know, COVID hospital research between the Emirates and Israel, that probably was here to stay regardless of any dramatic decisions at home. I think so. I yeah. think that, yes, especially, especially the kind of cultural side of the, 
of the of the dynamics um, of the, of the relations. I think that uh, mm, mm. Um, or the kind of soft politics. I think that the kind yeah. of um, minister to minister that level of kind of state diplomacy. I think that we're still some time away from. But the kind of soft power of yeah, exactly sports teams engaging with one another. I think that that's probably uh, unlikely to change right. in the coming months. Um, uh, if, if Israel conducts their kind of planned annexation of the occupied territories. But I do think that there will be some kind of a violent response. I don't know necessarily what it will look like, but I think that there is a chance that it will have um, implications potentially on Lebanon, depending on the kind of, um, on the way that the, uh, on when rather the annexation plans are conducted. I think that there is a chance um, that there will be reverberations felt um, by that, by that decision, just not on a state by state level. I, I love every quote that starts with "I don't know," and then five minutes later, I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> I definitely don't know. I feel like I should reiterate that. Yeah, I well, really, really can confidently say that I don't know. It can uh, start and end with "I don't know," but everything in the middle is what matters. <laughs> Deba, you're you're kind to give me so much of your time tonight. And also that we're, we have more to discuss in a, in a very, um, you know, the geopolitics is an important story, obviously. But, uh, you know, sometimes the arts can play a role. And I like the story of identity and maybe competing national identities. I'm not going to say more than that. But we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Something I really look forward to. And... Uh, I'll say one thing as well. Um, it helps to speak to a risk analyst about the wider political paradigm because I've been so sort of focused in on the domestic stuff. It's good yeah. once in a while to step back and still appreciate the geopolitical story because it is there. And yeah. I think uh, we said it earlier, they cannot be detached from each other. They line mm -hmm. up together. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for helping explain our part of the world. My pleasure, and um, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that the focus deservedly is and should continue to be on the kind of domestic challenges faced by Lebanon and um, its people. But but you're right. I think that it's important to kind of situate the the country um, and what's happening within a wider context, um, just to kind of. Um, you know, understand it from a different angle, from a different lens, and it's by no means to kind of diminish the significance of what is happening in the country now, or to kind of um, to negate the significance of you know the domestic dynamics in Lebanon, whether it be kind of um, failure of the state or, or anything else. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about it with you, and I look forward to to next next times. Merci. Khodafis. Khodafis. <laughs> Thank you, Diva. No problem. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>